Well, we're going to continue on with our series. Uh, obviously, we're th week three into uh, our study of the Lord's Prayer. We did our intro a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're spending two weeks just on these first two words, Our Father. We're not going to go through it word by word, but I felt like it uh, really deserves some time and attention to spend time with these first two words. So what I'm hoping for by the end of this series is that you really see the Lord's Prayer as a bit of a roadmap back into your own soul, a roadmap back into your relationship with God, kind of a when you feel lost, a little bit of a starting point and on-ramp to say, let me start here in my conversation with God, because it's a little bit of a mindset reset. So what I want to do this morning, because um, I want the second half of this material to really, I want us to come away with something tangible, something that uh, we can sink our teeth into, something we could do something about in this phrase, our Father. And so we're going to talk about this word Father, but before we talk about the word Father, uh, I kind of want to split this up into two sections this morning, and uh, I'm going to take a few minutes on this first section because I think by talking about this first part, hopefully it makes the second part a little more useful, and if nothing else, I hope the first part is like one of those things you just needed to hear. You didn't know you needed to hear it until you heard it, and then you heard it, and you're like, man, I'm glad I heard it, and so that's what I'm hoping for in these first few minutes, and it's a phrase. And I want everybody's attention right here for just a minute because I really want you to get this phrase. I want you to get it. Uh, we're going to say it together because this phrase is going to be life and death for most of us. And when we say this phrase together, uh, I want you to ask yourself the question, do I have it? All right. So the phrase is just, just two words. Growth mindset. Super simple, right? Growth mindset. All right, so let's say that together. Let's, let's just get it in our thinking, get it in our vocabulary. So one, two, three, growth mindset, right? So there's, there's two different types of mindsets researchers would tell us. There's a growth mindset and there's a fixed mindset. What we want to do coming into this material is have a, what's the, what's the phrase, church family? Growth. We want to have a growth mindset mindset going into the material this morning. So to kind of make this real simple and memorable and sticky that you can take this with you, uh, it's kind of a comparison between uh, Candyland and Checkers. How many of you guys ever played Candyland? I know Aunt Nett just played it with Gallia uh, this week, one of Gallia's new favorites. Okay, so everybody here's played Candyland. You understand the rules to Candyland that there's really not a lot of rules. It's wired for people that don't uh, have a mind to make a lot of choices. There is zero strategy to Candyland. There is no brain involvement at all. It is literally, you pick up the card, flip over the card, and you simply do whatever the card tells you to do. You, you don't have to decide, do I go uh, two orange squares forward or two orange squares back. Nope, you don't get that choice. You just move forward, right? And for a lot of us, I think that um, something happens. I don't know if it happens in our teen years, in our early 20s, but somewhere along the way, by nature, we start to get a fixed mindset. And a fixed mindset is not a growth mindset. A fixed mindset is like you're 45 years old and you're still playing Candyland. You still think that life is whatever is handed to you. You still think that life is what my parents did to me, what my bosses did to me, what my ex did to me, and you think that all of life has loaded the gun for you. 
And maybe life has. Maybe life has taken a dump and you've got all six barrels are full of bullets, but you're the one who pulls the trigger. Growth mindset. What you choose to do with what you've been handed is a matter of life and death. See, a fixed mindset is, is kind of like, a, it's, it's like our favorite phrase becomes same stuff, different day, right? That's, that's, a, that's a fixed mindset. Same stuff, different day. It's never going to be any different. But a growth mindset says, yeah, same stuff. Yeah, the world's still broken. Yeah, my ex is still my ex, right? My parents are still my parents. My, you know, the, the, the political system is still the political system. You know, whatever it is for you, like it's still same stuff, but new day. And it's, it's like playing checkers. Because in checkers, yeah, there's your opponent moves, right? Life moves. Other things that are outside of your control move. And then now it's your choice to respond to it. Criticizing and complaining, attacking and accusing are not responses, right? Those are reactions. That's still Candyland. And the thing is, is I think that some of us go through life, including our spiritual life, and we kind of see God as like a heavenly tinkerbell. <laughs> that God is just going to come down with his magic wand and go, bring, and we'll know, oh, that's our sign to turn the page. Remember those books when you were a kid, right? You read along with the record. Like we're waiting for Tinkerbell to hit us with her magic wand. God's just going to drop a miracle into your situation, and all of a sudden, life's going to be easier. Your spouse is going to put their socks in the hamper, and your ex is going to stop sending you crappy texts, and your parents will understand why you voted the way you voted, and right, like all these different things. And that's a Tinkerbell fixed mindset. That's a Candyland mindset. And if we're going to grow deep, and we're going to experience the life, the abundant life that Jesus said he had for his followers, then we have to at some point trade in the Candyland living, Candyland thinking that whatever is just handed to me, whatever cards flip up in the mix, you know, same stuff, different day, we have to trade that in, repent from that. And that's the great thing about the word repent. Is, is I think some of us, we heard it like hellfire and damnation. Uh, you better repent. But repent is actually an empowering word that you and I have the power to change. It's what makes us different than the animals is you and I have a will. And we're going to get into that in a few weeks as we continue to unpack the Lord's Prayer because we have this kind of battle of wills, right? But that's getting ahead of myself. But you and I have been given a will. You have power to change. You have power to change your world. You have power to change how you think. You don't have to pull the trigger. You don't have to just move two steps forward when the card flips up. That it's a game of checkers. That it moves, and then, all right, then I'm going to move, right? And you're forming a strategy because you don't want all your pieces to be jumped over, right? There are obstacles in life. Right? We, we read the Bible. We read this Paul's letter to the Romans, and it says that we're more than an overcomer. Right? And we love to sing that. Put that in our songs. I'm more than a conqueror. Right? Except I don't want anything to actually conquer. <laughs> we want to be more than an overcomer, but we don't want any obstacles to overcome. And things are going to come your way. You're going to flip the card over, and it's going to be the molasses swamp once in a while. 
You know what I'm talking about. You still tracking with me on the Candyland analogy? Sometimes it's going to be the molasses swamp. The great thing is your life doesn't have to be Candyland. Yeah, you might get handed the molasses swamp, but then you get to counteract it with scripture, with truth, with the people God's put into your life. You don't just have to sit there with a fixed mindset and be a victim of your past. If we come into this morning, and I don't say what I just said, I think what happens is we come into church a little bit passive, and you're just waiting for pastor to flip open the card, right? And like, well, let's see what we got today, and then uh, we'll wait till next week, and uh, you know, you know, get enough, like it puts all the weight on me to entertain the heck out of you, um, and that's not life. Like that, that's the Candyland relationship that we come into those sometimes. Let's just wait for whatever gets flipped up our way, and okay, we'll just uh, work with that, I guess, a little bit growth mindset. One of the first examples I saw of a growth mindset was when I lived with a young family from our church. You've heard their names. It goes Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Don Pearson, Joel and Lois Groth. Those are the <laughs> extended members of the Trinity in my life. And if you spent any time around me, you hear those names a lot. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Don Pearson, Joel and Lois Groth. <clears throat> and Living with Joe and Lois Grote, I remember hearing through the ductwork first time I ever heard them get into a fight. I didn't hear them fight often. I listened to my parents fight all the time. That's why I got so good at it. And, but but my, my parents, I mean, I would fall asleep listening to them going at it sometimes, just yelling through the house, 8.30, 9.30, 10.30, 11.30, 1.00 in the morning, tension still high at breakfast the next morning. And that's kind of what I grew up with. I thought that was normal. That was Candyland. That's what was flipped up and shown to me as an example of marriage. And then I lived with Joel and Lois Grote. And I remember it started to escalate a little bit, and then I could hear. I'm not going to lie. I, so then I walked over to the ductwork, and I stuck my ear up to it because I was so fascinated. Like, why did it get so quiet? And then I found a reason a little bit later to uh, work my way up to the kitchen from my bedroom in the downstairs because I wanted to see why was things so quiet. It was so heated just a couple of minutes ago. And I walk in the kitchen to get a drink, kind of glance out into the living room, and Joel is sitting on the living room couch, and he's holding Lois's hands, and they're working through the argument. Weirdest freaking thing I ever saw <laughs> up to that point. Like, that's how you guys fight? And it was kind of this like, hey, babe, we're an us. We're going to get through this. So let's remember that we're an us, right? Let's not make this personal. Let's attack the problem, not the person, right? What were they doing? They were playing checkers. They had a growth mindset. And because they had a growth mindset, they don't have to argue the way that maybe their parents argued. They realized, hey, we can move the pieces and we can do this differently. And I think we can do it better. I remember visiting Resurrection Life Church on a Sunday night visiting church and uh, worship is going and uh, finally I don't remember it was one of the pastors and one of the worship leaders but they simply uh, got up grabbed the microphone and they said all right we're going to receive our offering <laughs> and they said they said we're going to receive our offering and people started cheering it was like the beginning of a college football game Woo! Right? And worship leaders were lifting their shirts up going, spring break! No, they didn't do that. They didn't do that part. I just, I just made that up. But that was the kind of atmosphere that it was. They all just started screaming and cheering. And the thing is, as it, I would learn over the years, uh, that wasn't a one-off. That was every Sunday. And it was every Sunday because what had happened at Resurrection Life Church, a growth mindset. 
Because for them, they saw their finances differently because they had good, solid, scriptural, biblical, godly teaching about money. And so, like, at our church, we didn't talk about money because you weren't supposed to talk about money. It was just this thing like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're just going to pass around the brass bowl, right? And it was almost like apologetic in nature. Like, okay, well, here it is. If you could just throw in a little bit, that would help us keep the lights on. And, uh, you know, growing up, like, that church didn't stay alive. That's weird, right? And there was no, but there was no vibrancy in that church growing up there wasn't there wasn't this like we're excited about what god's doing and so stepping into resurrection life i thought this is exactly what the gospel should look like like there should be a different way of looking at our giving they were excited to give away their money because they understood some of the principles and they more understood the character of god so for them giving was a delight it was a joy they were excited about what jesus was doing in their midst at their church they knew there was a power when something happens when believers get together open up scripture sing to the lord like they they sang differently they they worshiped they they taught differently and they got excited when they took the offering what is that that is a growth mindset it's a growth mindset yeah we got bills yeah, we have a mortgage payment and a house payment, and we got to pay for you know uh, the kids' schooling, and we got to do all these different things. But they didn't let fear. They didn't just let life flip over the cards and go. Boy, sure is a financial stretch, isn't it? Oh, poor you. But the Lord will take care of you. You'll get through it. Right? They were like, no, no, no. We're not going to sit here and just be the victim of everything that comes at us in life. Like, no, we're going to be proactive. Right? Same stuff, but it's a new day. It's God's day. And so I think as we come into this material, we look at the words of this student, this disciple of Jesus that sets off this whole Lord's Prayer. We're, and if you don't remember the intro from a couple of weeks ago, this whole thing started, this Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. It all, all that came from was a question. It was a question that one of Jesus' students asked him. Lord, can, can you teach us how to pray? Like, we don't have prayers, but you seem to know how to pray. Like, you pray and things happen. You pray and mountains move. You pray and, like, people come at you and you're, like, ready for them. And you're able to answer with truth, but also grace. You're an anomaly. Like, we know how to react. We know how to fight people, but we don't know how to love them, speak firmly to them. And you speak firmly to them in a way that they seem to want to follow you around even more. It's a little nuts, and we think it has something to do with your prayer life. Do you see what that disciple did, though? What's the phrase, church family? Growth mindset. All right, you still with me? Growth mindset. This disciple had a growth mindset mindset in other words hey you are at where i'm not at and i want to be where you're at and so i want to grow they were proactive stop coming in here waiting for tinkerbell to hit you with a magic bible wand it's not going to happen this is why some of you you haven't experienced a breakthrough and you haven't experienced uh one iota of spiritual growth even though you've been coming here for 10 years hearing great preaching and yet you're still stuck in some of the same spots because you come in here with a fixed mindset and you walk through life with a fixed mindset. And so nothing is actually changing, right? You've just changed some of your social habits when you're around other Christians because you've learned how to fit in. And I want it to go deeper for you. I want you to have a faith that weathers you through storms. I want you to suffer well. I want you to go through the next season of life 
and not get knocked over and not get sunk in by the molasses swamp. So we approach this material with the same spirit that that student approached that material. Lord, we're here to learn. There's something that you know that we don't know. There's something you get that we don't get. And so it's with that, I hope that we come into the material this morning with a simple question that is at the heart of the growth mindset. What else don't I know? What else don't I know? All right. So now let's jump into the material. Our Father. If Star Wars has taught us anything, it is that father-son relationships can be complicated. <laughs> and why does Jesus start this prayer with our Father? Father. Jesus starts with the word, and I have to wrestle with the question, how is starting with an image, Father, that brings up a lot of baggage for somebody like me, how is that supposed to help my mental, emotional, or spiritual health when my own relationship and some of our relationships with our fathers were complicated? Two obstacles that I want to look at this morning. Two obstacles, and I call them obstacles, not problems, because problems are something that we tend to carry around. Obstacles are something that we can overcome. And we can overcome them because we have a growth mindset, right? So two obstacles, and it's no problem for you because you are more than an overcomer, and we can overcome obstacles. Like Annette tells Summer, you can do hard things. Okay, New Vintage Church, you can do hard things. All right, so we have two obstacles that I think end up being a bit of a hindrance when we come to this phrase, our Father. Now, so let's start here with obstacle number one, because I think obstacle one uh, kind of props up obstacle number two. So if we can kind of knock down one, I think maybe the second one falls a little bit easier. When I hear the phrase, our Father, I feel like the implied is our family. You hear me? It's not, it's not a religion. It's, it's not a system of duties. In fact, if you and I look at every single command, Old Testament, New Testament, anything that was from God for the people, 100% of it is relational. There, is no, there, there aren't these commands about just be a good, moral, upstanding person in and of yourself, right? I mean, it's somewhere in American evangelicalism, we've kind of got drowned in that. But all the commands are relational. Speak with compassion to one another. Be gentle with one another. Be kind and forgiving. Forbear with one another. They're all one another's. Every command is a relational command. So all sin is always committed at a relational level. All right. So we'll start there. So when God says, or excuse me, when Jesus says, our Father, I think the implication there is our family. We're a family. Now, here's where it starts to get messy. What does our family mean? Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, a group of wealthy businessmen and politicians, they were very concerned about the direction of the family in America. And so they used their wealth and they used their influence to create a television show called The Waltons. You guys, anybody Gen Xers here, baby boomers and Gen Xers? 
If you're a baby boomer, you saw it first time around. If you're a Gen Xer, you saw the reruns on syndicated TV. And they wanted to present to America this uh, ideal of family values. Ma and pa, right? And men are men and women are women. And that was family, family values. And uh, the heart behind it, I don't think, was, was bad. Uh, but the execution at the time, they were trying to deal with a cultural concern. And, but then some time went on. And uh, culture started to ask questions. Uh, we started to run into different strokes. Uh, what about a single parent? Is that a family? Uh, is a single parent with a mixed race, is that a family? Uh, we meet the Brady Bunch, right, at a time that divorce is starting to escalate in the 70s, and we meet our first blended family. Like, they never talked about their exes. It was just a blended family trying to cope with, like, so what about this? Uh, is this a family? Uh, and, and, and some time goes on, and, and we meet, uh, who's the boss? What about when there's a powerful matriarchal figure instead of a patriarchal figure? Is, is that a family? How about my two dads, two people of the same sex, Raising a young teenage daughter, is that a family? Or how about the Cosby Show? I think one of the brilliant uh, ideas behind the Cosby Show is at a time when, you know, there was still this pretty heavy undercurrent of what a black family looked like. All of a sudden, there's a black successful family with two black successful parents raising young people that weren't criminals. Like, is, can a black family... Can, is that a family? And of course, then over time, it got a little ridiculous. What if we had a robot daughter or a, a puppet alien? Is that, you guys remember Alf? Small wonder. You guys tracking with me? Sometimes we were just throwing jello at the wall to see what would stick. I don't know about you, but I think for me at least, I tend to view our father and the term our family through the lens of the traditions I was raised in. I think just like uh, the cultural tension of is this a family? And what about this? What about this from this angle? If we look at family from this angle with uh, two dads, if we look at the family from this angle with a strong female lead, is that a family, right? And I think that life is kind of drawing us in as we come to the Lord's Prayer. And it's almost like, uh, here's, is, is this is this still Christianity? Is this still the gospel? Is this still, right? Because I think what happens is we get, to, at least I get this myopic, one-sided view of who God is, and that one-sided, one-dimensional way of seeing who God is is really based on my upbringing. So in other words, if you were raised in a home where mom and dad were kind of finger-waggers, always, you know, shame on you, and they ask shaming questions like, why did you do that? What were you thinking? Right? Do you hear the shame in those questions? And for some of us, that's how our parents raise us. What were you thinking? I.e., you dummy, you idiot, you moron. Well, I don't know what I was thinking. Mom, I'm eight years old. I think a lot of stupid things. It's up to you to train me. So what I see here is bad parenting more than anything. Right? <laughs> we can't articulate that at eight years old. But if you were raised in a guilt punishment system, you probably relate to God with a guilt punishment theology. And so passages about God's wrath, God's justice, God's punishment, those all like ring really true to you. And chances are you're a lot of fun at parties. 
Now, uh, if you were raised in a, in a family atmosphere, in a family tradition where mom or dad was kind of uh, absent, right? They were just kind of checked out. Chances are you have a view of God that's very distant and kind of checked out, almost like theism. Like God just, he's like the grand watchmaker. He, he put all the universe together, wound it up, and just stood back and just let it go. For me, I grew up in a tradition where we went to church and everything was old. The building was old. The furniture and furnishings were old. The decor was decrepitly old, right? The wallpaper, we had gold wallpaper in the sanctuary that was peeling off. And then all of the people, like literally all of the people were old. We had, we had uh, hearing aids uh, stations all throughout the church. That's a good thing, right? But like everybody needed them. It was like a fight on Sunday mornings to get to the hearing aid stations. It was all old. So can you understand that for me growing up, the thought of God, church, religion, any of that was for old people. It was something that you put into a nursing home. Is it any wonder that my view of God uh, is, to this day even, this uh, kind of a grandfatherly, almost Zeus-looking figure? I'm not sure why an eternal God would want to be portrayed as like an old man. <laughs> um, but anyway... Apparently, they don't have any Botox in the heavens. So God is always kind of this old man, but he's always ripped like Zeus, and he always looks kind of pissed off like Zeus. You know what I'm talking Like That's the kind of image of God that I was raised with. It was either this angry old grandfather that always had a little bit of fire in his eyes or this like really passive, glowing Jesus that was gaunt, skinny. He was like an emo kid, had his hair in his face, no expression, just like, I'm too cool to smile. Blessed are the meek. Right? Super charismatic. And so the question, I think, that we have to work through, because, because we have these one-dimensional views of God, and those one-dimensional views typically reflect what we were raised with and probably what we've reinforced for most of our adult life, is what else don't I know? See, it's a, what's the phrase, church family? Growth mindset. And a growth mindset is, what else don't I know? Or maybe a better question in this is, who do you think you're talking to? Like when we come to prayer and we say, our Father, who do you think you're talking to? When Jesus says he's on the other side of the door, and he says, I, I, I want to come in, I want to have fellowship with you. I be, behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. And conversely, he tells us, he gives us metaphors, like I want you to knock. I want you to ask and seek and knock. And it's a, there's this metaphor that there's a door. There's something between us, right? We're, we're not face to face. We're not in the same room in the sense that we understand being in the same room. But uh, he's like, I'm right here. I'm right on the other side. You just can't see me. And we want to know what's on the other side of the door, right? Are they safe? Are they good? What are they like? Like, I'm not going to open this door. I'm not going to open my life unless I understand who is on the other side. So who do you think you're talking to. I will say his name is not Harold. Where's my baby boomer Gen Xers that remember who Art Linkletter is? Kids say the darndest things. Like I remember when I was a kid, he was interviewing kids in church and he was asking him about the Lord's Prayer. And one girl, oh yeah, Harold. This is like talking to Gallia this week when she found out that Miles had a snake named Oliver. She's like, oh, Rudolph's friend. 
Rudolph's friend? Yeah, like in the song, Oliver Reindeer. <laughs> Kids really do say the darndest things. And a girl was asked about the, the Lord's Prayer. She said, oh yeah, God, his name is Harold. Our Father in heaven, Harold is his name. <laughs> Who do you and I think we're talking to? Because here's the first obstacle. I think that the first obstacle that you and I run into, and it's an obstacle that keeps us in a fixed mindset, it's an obstacle that keeps us down, and it's an obstacle that keeps us from growing into the vibrant relationship that Jesus has for us with the Father. And it's this word, over-familiarity. Over-familiarity. Now, that's the first of two obstacles. But I think for a lot of us, not all of us, but for a lot of us, we are too familiar with this idea of God because we've been raised around it. It's like you see it so much, it's, it, you don't see it anymore. It's like asking a fish if they feel wet. They don't feel anything because they're over-familiar. So humor. Humor is this thing that uh, I've either been blessed or cursed with. Uh, depends on how I'm using it. And here's the thing is ever since, as far back as I can remember, uh, humor has always been this tool that, for the most part, I find to be really effective and helpful in navigating social situations. In other words, uh, the, you know, social anxiety, like it kind of runs deep for a lot of us. Uh, yeah, am I going to be accepted or rejected? Like that thing's always playing out in most of our brains. And I found that going back to an early age, there was something about humor that kind of humanized everybody around me. It leveled the playing field. And I noticed how it disarmed people. Like if you get people to laugh together, you get people to smile together, that somehow they weren't as scary. And so for me, humor was a little bit of a coping mechanism, uh, but it was also a good tool. Now, there are also times that I've used humor at the wrong time in the wrong place, and then humor becomes quite hurtful, right? And so to this day, like that's just a day by day. You never know what you're going to get. But for the most part, humor always helped me out. And so uh, Jack, Jack moved to our school in 10th grade. And Jack was like everything that I wasn't. Jack was, he was cool. He was cut. He, it's, he was quiet. Uh, and I remember looking at Jack thinking, man, that dude is so cool. Dude's got a 68 Ford Fairlane. It's full of rust. But man, what a cool guy. <laughs> and, or to go with Chris Collinsworth announcing yesterday's football game, what a stud. <laughs> Watching TV yesterday, and he's talking about, doesn't matter. But he's, he's like, man, look at this place. What a stud. Like, have we, has anybody used that term since like 1979, especially on national TV? But anyway, that's kind of how I felt about Jack. Like, man, what a, what a cool guy. See, because where he was cool and cut and quiet, I was kind of um, loud and soft around the middle and noisy. So there we are in the lunchroom. Jack is sitting at the table with everybody else. I haven't taken my seat. And uh, Jack turns his head to talk to somebody to his left. I'm standing over here to his right, so I reach around, and I, I think this will be a funny moment. I take a sandwich. I just take a sandwich, and I hide it behind my back. <laughs> just making a connection. Jack turns around. I didn't know Jack's home life. I didn't know Jack's issues. I didn't know anything about Jack. What I did know is that the brick pillar that was just a couple feet from me hurts really bad when you're slammed against it. He turned around. He's like, where's my sandwich? And I was like, oh, man, I got it. I went against that brick pillar so fast. 
<clears throat> right? Like, oh, you didn't think that would be funny. Now, I wish I could say that I learned my lesson that moment in 10th grade, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. By 80 or so, I, I think I'll have it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, mm. I'm not making any promises. I'm just saying, amazing. I have a growth mindset, Nick. I'm hopeful. <laughs> now, Jack and I went on to be actually really good friends. But that was kind of our rough start, is I had, I had to be put in my place. I had understood where I was on the social food chain, and I had to understand some of his baggage and some of his boundaries that were much tighter than my boundaries. He didn't know me. He didn't know my intentions, right? And so we had a moment of, oh, okay, Jack. And it created humility in me. What else don't I know about you? See, I just assumed he was just like me. He's very one-dimensional. We go to uh, Narnia, as you should. The children go through the wardrobe, and they're in this place, and... There's a moment where they've all gotten separated, and a couple of the characters, they meet a couple of the creatures from Narnia. A lot of us, we've heard the story before, and uh, they begin to ask questions about this Aslan. We keep hearing stories about the king of Narnia, about this Aslan, and the creatures from Narnia are like, oh, yes, Aslan. He's a lion. And Lucy asked the creatures, so the king of Narnia is a lion? Like, we have to go meet a lion? Yes, you're going to have to go meet the lion. And she said, oh, I would be most afraid to meet a lion. Is he safe? And I love the creature's response. Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. And then he responds, but... He is good. I don't know if I really got the weight of that when I read it when I was younger, but I definitely started to get the weight of it when I was older. What was Lewis doing in that moment? What Lewis, I think, is doing in that moment is saying, look, for those of us that have <clears throat> this fixed view of God, this one-dimensional view, right? Because I think what can happen so often is we've heard God is love, God is love, God is love, and God is love. Boy, our generation more than ever needs to hear God is love. It is not the only dimension of his character that God is also holy. In fact, the very next sentence, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Not good, not loving, holy. The first characteristic is that God is absolutely holy. There are some traditions, modern Protestant traditions to this day, uh, keep up with the Old Testament command not to make any images of God. In other words, there are some Protestant mainline denominations. They don't have crosses or crucifixes up in their church. They don't have pictures or paintings of Jesus, the Last Supper, any of the stuff. They don't have them in their houses of worship, and they don't have them in their homes. Now, the first time I heard that, uh, first, I thought, well, you're not missing too much because most pictures I see of Jesus are a little, I guess, just not my style. But over time, I think, or at least I wonder, if they're maybe not onto something. Like, I wonder how many times the images that I have of a white Zeus old Jesus uh, or God 
end up doing maybe more harm than good. I've become over-familiar with Aslan. I've become too comfortable being in the lion's cage, and I forget I'm in the lion's cage. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. And this is where I think life gets confusing for some of us because we started walking with Jesus and we thought life was going to get better. In fact, let's take it a step further. For some of us, we have stepped out into ministry. We've stepped out into, and I'm not talking about vocational ministry. I'm talking about like you went to church and over time, like it sank in and you're like, man, I want to be a part of that. And you realize that part of Christianity is serving and loving others. And so you started to do that. You started to step out. You're like, I'm going to volunteer for this. And I'm, I'm going to put myself out there for that. And what happened is you got burned. And you thought, you thought it was supposed, like, I thought church was supposed to be a safe place. You're like, church should be a safe place. But it's full of broken, selfish people like you and like me, right? This is, this is a hospital for sinners. This is not a country club for saints. And we're all kind of broken, and we're all doing the best we can, and we're figuring it out. And, and this is why Paul's admonishment to the Colossians, forbear with one another. Like, we're going to have to put up with some stuff. We're sheep. We're going to walk in the sheep crap. Right? We're going to get our feet dirty. Walking with Jesus is not safe. I don't know where in the Bible we got these ideas that, uh, like, we, we pray, we send our kids out on mission trips, like, Lord, protect them. That's a neat prayer. But there's nowhere in Scripture that is going to give you that rock-solid promise. Like, David wrote it in the Psalms, but he was a poet. Right? He was just expressing his wants and his feelings, but there's not a promise. And if you read through the pages of Scripture, everybody that starts following after God, I mean really following after God, really moving out of a fixed mindset into a growth mindset, a growth faith that says, hey, we're going to start moving the checker pieces forward. We're going to advance the kingdom. We're going to advance the gospel. I'm going to obey what God's told me to do. I'm going to step out there financially. I'm going to step out there with my life. I'm going to step out there with my gifts. And we think it's going to be safe. And it's not going to be safe. You're going to get crapped on, and people are going to hurt you, and they're going to accuse you, and they're going to attack you, and you're going to go, oh, God, what happened? I thought I was serving you. He's not safe. He's not going to lead you into safety, right? He, he leads us through the valley, not around it. Through the valley, not, not around it. He's a lion. Safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. But he's good. See, what happens is, and, and I'm going to pull this up so you know that th this isn't my words. This is research. I think what happens is when we get caught in a fixed mindset, we end up developing, and, and again, not my words. This is research. This is just a little science here to go with your theology this morning. We develop an avoidance uh, mindset and really... Uh, researchers would call it an avoidance disorder. When we continue with a fixed mindset, we think God is good and so life is going to be good, and we have bad theology, we end up having a bad life. It's not because life gets worse, it's because we don't know how to handle it. Good theology can save your life. That's why I love that you come here, because it's packed with good theology by God's grace. But it really is. We hope that we give you good theology that you can leave here and go, I've got some tools to deal with life. And so what happens is when we have bad theology, we develop an avoidance disorder. So I want you to just hear, this is from Psychology Today, 
These are the clinical scientific things that they have learned about avoidance disorder. See if you can find, uh, not you, see if you can find like your ex on the map. Avoids activities that include contact with others because of fear of criticism, rejection, or feelings of inadequacy. For example, some individuals avoid work or call off because they're tired of feeling like their coworkers or bosses are ridiculing them. An unwillingness, an unwillingness, you hear that word will? So the will is involved here. It's not something that happened to you. It wasn't a card you were dealt. You made a choice. It's unwillingness to engage in interpersonal relationships unless they are certain of being approved of or liked. The writer here then puts a side note. My experience with avoidant personalities is that they'll often push the limits to see if you will still approve of them. You ever have anybody like that? Preoccupation with rejection, loss, or ridicule. I'm going to say that again. An avoidant disorder. You become preoccupied with rejection, loss. We're going to lose the house. We're going to lose the money. We're going to lose the car. We're going to lose the kid. We're going to lose something. Preoccupation with rejection, loss, or ridicule. I would go so far as to say that preoccupation can, can become an obsession. Lastly, becoming easily hurt when rejection or criticism is perceived, experienced, or assumed. An individual may find it very difficult to forgive someone or get over someone who has not approved of them in some way. Fixed mindset. Avoidance disorder. This is why a growth mindset is life or death. What else don't I know about this Aslan? Well, for starters, he's not safe. Walking with Jesus is dangerous. Following after the Lord is risky business. And you might lose your reputation. You might lose your good name. You might lose money. You might lose your sanity a little bit. You might get dumped on. You might not get approval. You might get criticized. You might lose lots of things. Who do you think you're talking to? When Jesus says, our Father, who do you think is on the other side of the door? Webster's would tell us that over-familiarity, it's a state of acquaintance without stimulus, vibrancy, or appreciation. It's a state of acquaintance without stimulus, vibrancy, or appreciation. In other words, it's to maintain a nonchalant relationship with indifference. Let's put that into real life. Over-familiarity is what causes workplace accidents. It's when you become so familiar with a machine, you forget how dangerous that machine is. It's over-familiarity with your vehicle and texting while driving, right? You get over-familiar with it. That's how accidents happen, is you, re you forget, like, this is actually dangerous what I'm doing, and I need to pay more attention. But instead, we develop indifference while we're behind the wheel. This is where couples begin to drift into affairs. 
is because they stop wondering. They have this one-dimensional view of their spouse. And over time, that one-dimensional view, if the spouse, you know, pees in the pool, messes something up, all of a sudden that's like your one dimension. You can't let go of it, right? You don't see that there's other dimensions to people, that they're not just all bad or all good, that they're multidimensional people. They're complex characters in the story, right? And so I think what happens is when we stop exploring one another, when we're like, oh, you know, we have this over-familiarity with the person we're married to. What happens when you're over-familiar, you stop pursuing, you stop asking questions like, yeah, seen it, been there, done that, I need to do somebody else now. That's really how we kind of end up approaching it, right? And you notice that all of a sudden, like the thing that captivates you about the person that you're starting to get, you know, a little sweet on, that you're not supposed to be getting sweet on, is somebody that they've either taken interest in you or you've taken interest in them. Why? Because there's something new. Oh, there's something new. I can be curious about this. You're right, because you want more dimensions than just one. But eventually, that person will wear out their welcome, and the next person will wear out their welcome. This is how over-familiarity is how we get traffic accidents. It's how we get marital accidents. It's, I mean, it's the conversation I used to have with my students at Rockford High School. It's the conversation I used to have when we would do these, these different trips and service projects. And there's such an over-familiarity with the wealth that they have. They don't even see it anymore. They don't see it. Like for them, an iPad is just standard operating equipment. I deserve an iPad. I deserve, you know, I should have Wi-Fi access everywhere I go. Because you get so close to it, you don't even see it anymore. I catch myself sometimes complaining about something, right? Like the Candyland card flips up, and it could be something as simple as like, man, my text has taken like seven seconds to, to, to send. Come on, you ever been there? This is the real life stuff. And you're like, man, I deserve better than this. Right? I've become so over-familiar. And I really, when I start complaining about my seven-second text send, oh, my this thing won't send. <laughs> I really, this is a first-world problem. <laughs> like, if somebody else were to look at my problem from a different angle, not as familiar with it as me, they'd be like, you have a, you have a cell phone? You can watch HD movies in the palm of your hand? You can talk to people on the other side of the earth? And you don't have to pay long distance charges? Like, you screw you and your seven second text sending. <laughs> but you know, Mark Twain, he said it kind of famously, not originally, but famously, he said that familiarity breeds contempt. That over time, this over familiarity breeds contempt. And I think that was true in the life of Jesus. So let's go to this story. Let's go to this story here from Mark 6. Jesus goes home. Jesus goes to his hometown where he is familiar. Everybody knows him. He doesn't have to introduce himself. This is where he grew up. He's been doing ministry, and he's been doing miracles. He shows up in his hometown, and here's his story in Mark chapter 6. It says, Jesus left there, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. This wasn't a good amazement. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives 
and in his own home. You see what happened in the story? They were over familiar with Jesus. Wait, we know you. You're just Jesus. You're just Jesus. Like we grew up with you. We played ball with you. We we know your brother James. Like you're just right. Like you ever notice that uh, there are people in your life you cannot succeed around because like aren't you just so and so? Like if you sing, if you do a show, and I've noticed this doing doing music for for a couple decades that. Um, we just had it this week. We have a band that plays here at Skeletones. When they play at Skeletones, we struggle to put 17 people in the door when they play. Really good band, but this is their hometown. Nobody cares. Uh, that's just Sean. That's just Sean, Matt, and Britt. But now they went out and played the Whiskey Go-Go in Hollywood, this like classic punk rock bar. They just played 40 Fest this week in Atlanta. Tons of people. Everybody knows their music. Like hundreds of people are singing along to their songs. And so I wrote back to Sean on text this week, and I said, you know, you know what they say, a big shot is just a little shot far away from home. And that was Jesus. Jesus was a big shot. He was a big deal for people that didn't know who he was. Who's this guy? But for the people that were familiar with him, oh, yeah, we've been raised around Jesus. Yeah, we know all about Jesus. And the awe was gone. The wonder was gone. The curiosity was gone. The fire was gone. Who do, you, who do you think that you're talking to? Is he a safe, manageable God? Is that the God you want? Is that a God that you can hold on to when everything hits the fan? The one where you get to control the narrative and you get to decide what goodness means? Or would you rather have a God that isn't going to bow to your imagination or mine? It's like, you see an aspect of me, but you don't see the fullness. In fact, I love that John has this vision of Jesus in Revelation. Like, John has already had a, he, he's seen Jesus face to face. He has seen, like, you are love and you are power, right? He gets all of it. And then he's in prison and he has this vision of Jesus. And this vision of Jesus in Revelation is, he had feet like bronze, and his statue was like iron, right? And he, and he had like lightning bolts and fire in his eyes. What was he seeing? He was seeing Jesus in his majesty. He was seeing Jesus in his heavenly realm. He wasn't seeing the little carpenter contained young man from Nazareth. He was seeing Jesus. I don't think he, his brain could even take it all in. Who do you think you're talking to? A nice, cute, little, manageable Jesus? Or Aslan? A lion? A lion who is going to get his way when it's all said and done. A lion who isn't safe, but he's good. I think this is why, and we'll go back to C.S. Lewis, and then we're going to wrap this up. I think this is why C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he says this, and this goes back to our growth mindset, fixed mindset. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. Oh, we can relate to that. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. And I think, boy, that was my experience as a Christian. Yeah, God came in, and he started doing some things. He started, you know, cleaning up, uh, you know, some of my habits. He started 
you know, I stopped smoking. I, I thought, these are good things I thought needed cleaning up. I stopped listening to secular music for at least a minute, and right? And those are all things, you know, yeah, God's just doing a little cleanup. But I didn't see how bad the problem was, and I didn't see how big God was. And this is what Lewis goes on to say. He says, but presently, and this might resonate with some of you, presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. See, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Wow. The obstacle of over-familiarity, I think, props up our second obstacle. And this is where we'll close. Under-familiarity. Because we're over-familiar, we end up becoming under-familiar. At the end of the day, we really don't know God as much as we think we do. I don't know God. In fact, the older I get, I'm realizing the less I think I know. There's so much I don't know. I mean, John himself writes about Jesus. He said, if, if we were to write down everything that he said and did, I don't think the world would have enough room for all the books that would be written. Like, this is a Bible verse that I think we overlook. Like, the story of the Bible says that the story is incomplete. I'm going to say that again because I'm not sure if it landed. The story itself says the story isn't complete. Paul would write later to the Corinthian church, and he says, look, we see in part. We see like we're looking at a reflection in a dirty mirror or through a glass window. We don't see everything right now. We don't see all of God, but all of life is this continual discovery just like the rebooting, or the, excuse me, the, the reinvention of family in the 80s sitcoms. God is doing that in our life. Is, is this part of me as well? Here's a part of me you haven't thought about. Here's an aspect of my character that maybe you have forgotten about. Here's something maybe you've never seen before, and it's on us. You go, what else don't I know? That maybe I've been over-familiar with one dimension of who God is and there's dimensions I don't, it's like trying to imagine uh, colors that we haven't seen yet. Like we can't even imagine what that would look like, right? And yet scientists would tell us there's tons of colors in the spectrum that we just, our eyes can't see. Under familiarity. When we deal with our over familiarity, we can start to see our under familiarity. And this is where we move from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset and when we can be honest about our under familiarity I think it causes us to see and seek Jesus differently because Jesus said I only do what I'd see my father doing I'm just I'm just kind of reflecting him and he said if you've seen me you've seen the father I'm just like the father we're kind of one in the same but he also says seek me seek me if you want to see me you have to seek me. The reason Jesus saw his father was he sought his father. 
Stop waiting for the father to just flip over the Candyland card. Say, come. That's an active word. Come find me. Come get me. Come knock on the door. Come seek after me. Dig. Don't just sit there and wait for pastor to just turn over the card on Sunday morning and give it to you. Get on your knees. I want you to have this time with me to seek me. Seek first the kingdom. All the metaphors about the kingdom of heaven that Jesus shares seem to be metaphors about things that are hidden. Treasure, seed, fish. They're all things that are under the surface. Let's stop being surfacey Christians that have a one-dimensional view of who God is. This is Aslan. This is the tiger. This is, excuse me, the lion. And he's not safe, but he's good. And it's in that fierceness that we will find an anchor for our soul. So this week, would you, would you pray the Lord's Prayer? Would you pray it with a family member? Would you teach it to your kids? Because as we said in week one, at some point, we're all going to need a little help to find our way home. Uh, will you stand? You should see the Lord's Prayer. No, you can stay right there for a minute, Rochelle. Let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.